is Resurrection Sunday. If you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Luke chapter 24. If you do not have a Bible, the passage of Scripture we will be investigating together today should be printed in your bulletin. We're going to take a look at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27, uh, particularly this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. This isn't just a story, it's a true story, and I want you to pay attention to it because it is fascinating and should be life-changing. Hear God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But... Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But... We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please come today by your spirit. Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see. Help our minds to grasp and comprehend and give our hearts the gift of faith to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Replace the chandeliers with disco balls. Remove the pews. Crank up the 70s disco music and let's all just have fun kung fu fighting today. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, 
then that would be a better use of this space than what we're using it for today. John Calvin said this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important article of our faith. Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then this hour is the biggest waste of your time. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then the breath that I'm breathing, the words that I'm speaking, is the biggest waste of breath I could have. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then there's no hope for me or you. Let's just turn the church into a nightclub. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, this hour is the most important hour of your life. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then the message you hear today is the most important message your ears will ever hear. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then these facts that we will investigate today are worth revisiting time and time and time again because they count for all of eternity. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then there's no problem, no pain, no suffering, no circumstance you face this day or any day that Jesus cannot handle. So I know some of you say, but Tanner, I've heard that before. And I've got questions. I've got questions that pastors have never answered. Well, notice how Jesus responds to questions in this passage. Jesus takes time. He listens. And he answers. Let me encourage you that Patrick and I live for those questions. The elders of this church along with us live for those types of conversations. But some of you, I know you may come here today and say, Tanner, I was raised in the church, but I've had a lot of confusion over the years. I mean, I've heard all these fantastical things that supposedly Jesus did, and I've heard all these phenomenal claims that he's made, but it's hard for me to see how they connect. Well, then this message is for you too, to see how the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus connect with meaning and significance. But some of you have wrestled or are wrestling with your faith, because like the gentleman in this passage, the the two individuals in this passage, you've had expectations of what Jesus should do for you and should be for you, and he has not lived up to your standards and your expectations. Then this message, too, is for you. Because Jesus comes to all of us with our questions, our doubts, our discouragements, our unfulfilled expectations, And he has time for us to listen, to interact, and resolve our questions. 
So this morning, what I want us to do with our time is I want us to do what Jesus did with the two individuals on this road to Emmaus. Jesus forced them to face two facts that would change their life. Jesus forced them to face two facts that would change all of history. And the first fact that he, he made them face was this, was the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus forced them to face the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in this passage that real people are mentioned. You'll see in verse 18 that it mentions one of them named Cleopas answers Jesus. I love the setting of this passage because these two individuals have received news, knowing that Jesus died, but that the women have gone to the tomb early in the morning, that the tomb was empty, that they did not find Jesus' body, and that the angels had visited them and told them that Jesus was alive. And they're confused. They've got all kinds of questions. And Jesus rolls up into their conversation, which I love, and notice that Luke mentions one of the individuals by name. Now, I've seen a lot of Christian movies over the years, you would expect a preacher to, and I always assumed that these two individuals were two men. But I read this week something I never read before, that in all likelihood, the two individuals that Jesus comes alongside to walk with and talk with that day was Cleopas and his wife. Makes sense. They had been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and now Jesus comes up alongside them and he begins to interact with their conversation. Why is this significant? Luke is not just adding color to the story. He's noting his source. In other words, he's saying, if you, if you head on down to Emmaus and knock on the door of the courthouse, or you knock on the door of the local church there, there's going to be a man there by the name of Cleopas who said that he walked seven miles with Jesus, and he saw Jesus resurrected. In other words, Luke is challenging his readers, go check my sources. What is Luke saying? You can check out the certainty of the faith that you have, the certainty of the, of the gospel that you have believed, because this news came to me through eyewitness accounts, through real people that interacted with Jesus and saw Jesus. Notice the reality of the resurrection. Real people, real sources. Also, what's interesting that you need to know is that in the first century, women were not considered credible witnesses. As you read all the gospel accounts, here's what's significant to note. The gospels don't shy away from the fact that in the first century, this would have been an embarrassment. Who was the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus? Who was the first one to receive news of an empty tomb? It was women. And I can't help but imagine that if, we, if, if the first century church behaved the way the church acts today, that we probably would have glossed over and said, well, let's not talk about the women being there. Let's just talk about the disciples showing up. They're apostles. But notice the transparency of the gospel that it, it, it forces us to face the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it doesn't gloss over any of the quote-unquote dirty details. Notice it's a real place that they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk. 6.8, 6.9 miles. I don't know how fast you can walk on the treadmill. I won't tell you how fast I can or can't walk on the treadmill. But let's just say this. The average person could take about two and a half. You're, you're really walking slow. Maybe three hours to walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
Now, for those that say that Jesus didn't truly die on the cross, let's just face the reality. The Romans were experts at execution. They guaranteed that the person that was crucified was dead when they took them off the cross. There were a number of ways that they would do that. One way is that if the the way people died on the crucifixion is that they would suffocate to death. As they dangled, their diaphragm would prevent them from breathing, so they had to push up on their feet to be able to grab breath. And if it was taking a little bit too long for for the criminals to die and the Roman soldiers wanted to get to their party on the weekend, they would take their mallet and they would break the kneecaps of the, the criminals that are hung there, and thus they would just go ahead and suffocate. What we receive news in the Gospels is that Jesus didn't have his legs broken. He had already expired, and so the Roman soldiers stabbed him through his abdomen, pierced his heart to guarantee the fact that he was dead. I don't know about you, but for me, even after I have a large meal, I can't walk seven miles. Can you imagine for a second that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not taken place, that a wounded man could have limped along seven miles that way? Absolutely not. What's the point? Luke is forcing us to face the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only does he talk about a real people, real place, a real path, but a real puzzle. For those of you that might be skeptics about the resurrection, here's the reality. I will challenge you to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ for this reason. Those that don't even believe that Jesus is God, whether they be Jew or whether they be a Roman historian, could not deny the fact that when the women rolled up to the tomb and when the apostles rolled up to the tomb, the tomb was empty. And they have no answer for it. But notice what happens in this passage is a real conversation. As it says here, verse 13 and 14, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They were confused. They didn't understand. One, because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, and a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah because he couldn't conquer the Roman Empire. They were discouraged. It says, verse 15, while they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. I love it. Jesus is playing with them. You get it? Jesus comes up alongside them. And here's what's interesting that I read this week. Supposedly, according to church tradition, Cleopas was actually Jesus' uncle. All likelihood, when Jesus was a baby, Cleopas could have actually changed Jesus' diaper. He probably watched Jesus take his first steps. He watched Jesus say, Dada, Mama. And now Jesus' uncle is, is walking alongside the resurrected Jesus. And by, because of a supernatural intervention, he's prevented from recognizing him. And Jesus is having a conversation with him. He's going, so what are you guys talking about? And they stand still. It says in the Greek, they stop dead in their tracks. They're depressed. What do you mean? Haven't you heard? Jesus is like, heard what? About Jesus of Nazareth, the, 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 the prophet that was mighty in deed and word, how he was crucified. And what's interesting in verses 
18 and following is that these, these two individuals nearly, Cleopas nearly quotes Jesus word for word in the prediction that Jesus had that he would be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, crucified and killed, and on the third day, raised again. And that's why it's so ironic in verse 21. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. What's ironic, in Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 19, Jesus twice yeah, Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 9, and Luke chapter 24, three times Jesus predicts, it's predicted that Jesus will die and resurrect. And so Josh McDowell says this, that after more than 700 hours, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, he come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes that your mind will ever come upon or it is the most fantastic fact of history. In other words, face the facts of the reality of the resurrection. What was Thursday? Do you remember? It was April 1st. I did what I normally do every Thursday morning. I got up and I had my favorite beverage of caffeine that morning. And I headed to the gym as I was finishing up my workout about a quarter till seven, I thought to myself, I need to have fun with some of our staff here at Bartow ARP Church. It's Monday, Thursday. I've got five services about ready to roll upon me. And so I decided that I would text Patrick and I would text our new operations manager, Melissa. And I said, hey, please keep this confidential. But I got up this morning to drink my caffeine and I noticed after I took my first drink that I couldn't taste it. And then I went to smell it, and I couldn't smell it. What should I do? It didn't take long before they all said, you need to go get tested. And I said, but where? Well, I know what's happening in Patrick's mind. You know what's happening in his mind. We got two Easter services. I got three days to prep an Easter sermon. He's going to be quarantined for 14 days. Good Friday. Who's preaching Good Friday? Okay, Chris is preaching Monday, Thursday. I've got that covered, but who's going to serve communion? Tanner's preaching Good Friday community service. What am I going to do about that? And so it took him a little bit longer to get back with me about where I needed to go. But (laughs) Melissa, in her operations manager's duty, was spot on it. Text me back. Go to this clinic. Here's the Google Map destination. Here's where you need to go to. Here's how you're going to get there. They're going to come out to you. They're going to swab your nose. And this is how long it's going to take for you to get the results. And I responded back to both of them, thank you very much. By the way, April Fool's. I had never heard someone yell over text message (laughs) until Thursday. That was a horrible hoax, wasn't it? It was. I came to the office that Thursday morning. They all laughed, but then they all looked at me and said, Tanner, way too soon. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no horrible hoax. And what we need to face today is that there is a far greater pandemic that may not possibly kill you. It will kill you. It's called sin. 
that if we go all the way back to the garden, sin entered the world when Adam rebelled against God. And death entered this world as a result of that sin because death was the consequence of sin. God said that all of mankind would be cursed with physical death as a result of that inherited sin nature. And unless God did something to save us or rescue us, we would also face a second death called spiritual death, condemnation, judgment, hell. Here's what concerns me about the evangelical church over the last year. We've taken COVID seriously, and we should. It can make people very sick, and people that we know and love have died. So I'm not trivializing it in any way, shape, or form. Nevertheless, we must face the fact as Christians that there's a far greater pandemic that will not possibly kill you. It will kill you. It's called sin. The scriptures say that for the wages of sin is death. And you think, well, that includes you, Tanner, but it doesn't include me. Well, the scriptures also say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's no one righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who desires God. There's no one who seeks God. And so the problem that we all face this morning is our sinful hearts. And that's why we need the reality of Jesus' suffering and glory. That's why we need the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection because it is the only solution to our problem. Which brings us to the second fact we got to face this morning, which is not only the reality of the resurrection, but the necessity of the resurrection. As Jesus listens to their conversation, he's very patient and he, he plays with them quite a bit, but the conversation turns from listener to teacher in verse 25. And I wonder how to interpret this, to be honest with you, because there's an exclamation point in my translation. And I wonder if he yelled at them, or I wonder if what he said yelled at their hearts more than how he said it. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I don't want you to miss what's being said here in verse 26. In the Greek language, there are two words for not that you can use in a question. And based on which not word is used, you already know the answer to the question before it's answered. Okay, for example, uh, when Jennifer and I first got married, I would get ready for Easter morning. And I would put a blue tie with a black suit. And she would say to me, You're not going to wear that tie with that suit, are you? Right? Now, she was asking me a question, right? But I knew the answer to that question before I even answered it, right? Based on how she asked the question. You're not going to wear that tie with that suit, are you? No, ma'am. It was just a practice run. Which tie should I wear, right? Now I get ready to come to session meetings on Monday night, and now she asks me the question a little bit differently. She'll, uh, not about my dress, but about the, about the trash. She'll be like, before you head out the door, you're going to take out the trash, aren't you? Right? 
Once again, I know the answer to that question before I ever answer it. She's saying, you're going to take out the trash, aren't you, baby? I'm like, yes, honey, I sure am. That is precisely what's happening here in verse 26. Jesus is asking a question, but the original Greek, the way he's asking the question, he's already providing the answer based on the word not that's used here. When he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The answer is, absolutely. Absolutely. It was necessary. Why? Let me summarize it this way. The reason the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are so essential to our salvation and a reconciled relationship to God is this. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it at all. So God has to provide the solution. But here's here's the tension. Here's the conflict. How can God do it without compromising his character? That's the issue. Because think about it. If God's gracious and merciful and says to us simply, hey, Tanner, you don't have to worry about that. That's good, but then God isn't holy and God isn't just. That's a problem. Because then you've got an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God that knows all the evil and all the sin that we're committing, and he doesn't punish it. There's no justice. There's no defending the holiness of his character. And yet, he could very easily have condemned all of us to hell. He would have been perfectly holy. He would have been perfectly just. But there would have been an aspect of his character we never could have celebrated and worshipped. And that was his patience, his mercy, and his grace. So the reason why the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so essential and necessary Because it's the only way that God can rescue a rebellious, treasonous person like you and me without compromising his character. It's the only way that God can restore us to a proper relationship with him without compromising his character. So how does he do that? He provides Jesus as our substitute And in his suffering, we learn that God's justice is served. The scriptures say, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we're earning. That's what we're deserving. When we get up on Monday morning and we go to work, we're also putting on our our hard hat of sin. And we're going hard at it every day. But God's justice is served because Jesus comes as our representative and our substitute. He lives perfectly obediently in all the ways that we fell, and then he comes to take the death penalty in our place for our sin. He pays the death sentence for our sin. Allow me to illustrate. It would be like this. Imagine that there is a judge who has taken an oath to uphold the law, and he has a rebellious son that is known as the, 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 the man in town that disobeys every traffic law and rule that there is. And the judge is sitting there on the bench one day, and his son comes in with with his ninth traffic violation. He's got a significant penalty to pay. There's a conflict of interest here, right? Because on one hand, the judge is, is, uh, is to uphold the law. 
But on the other hand, he's loving and cares for his son. So which will he do? Will he just simply ignore his son's violations and transgressions? Or will he throw the book at him? You see the tension. Here's what God does for us through Jesus. He upholds his own law, the holiness of his law, by declaring us guilty. But he sends his son down to make the payment. That, my friends, is the beauty of the gospel. And that's why Jesus' suffering and death are essential and necessary for our salvation. God's character cannot be compromised at all. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But that's not enough. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are both necessary to our salvation because although the penalty has been paid, the curse must be reversed. When Adam sinned against God, God cursed all of humanity, cursed the whole world, and said, now you will die because of your sin. And most of us in our conversation try to go around death. Have you noticed this? I've noticed this even in the church, and I use the language, so if I point one finger at you, i got three more pointing back at me. Have you noticed that even in the Christian church, no one dies anymore? Do you know what we do? We just pass away. No, you don't. You die. You become a corpse. And the only way that you conquer death is not to go around it, but to go through it. And that's precisely what Jesus did in the tomb that weekend. Jesus went through death. Not around death, but through death. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, Where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ didn't go around death. He went through death. How many of you remember in 1974 the rumble in the jungle? How many of you ever heard of it? The rumble in the jungle? Y'all never heard of this? Man, we got to get some culture. The rumble in the jungle is when Muhammad Ali took on George Foreman in Africa. Famous fight. I encourage you to YouTube it and Google it later. And there was a, a specific, infamous approach that Muhammad Ali took to the heavyweight champion George Foreman that day. It was called the rope-a-dope. Remember the rope-a-dope? Steve remembers the rope-a-dope. Here's how the rope-a-dope worked. Muhammad Ali went up against the ropes, and he took every blow that George Foreman would throw his way. And then after George Foreman tired himself, do you know what Muhammad Ali did? He wore him flat out and knocked him to the canvas. Think about it this way. On Good Friday, Satan himself was given one blow to Jesus Christ after another. And with a manacle cry of demonic terror, he was convinced that he was killing God and that Jesus was going down for the count. But on Sunday, Jesus Christ came off the ropes. And with his death, he had thrown one fatal blow to, the, to Satan, sin and death. 
And then with the resurrection, he gave them a deadly uppercut that sent Satan flying to the canvas of history and defeated permanently. That, my friends, is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary for your salvation. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is Jesus' one-two punch to sin and death. And you say, Tanner, a lot of claims there. How do I know it's true? I'll just give you ten reasons, although there are a thousand reasons, and you're getting nervous because you're thinking, he should be finished by now. I see your faces. We'll go quickly. We'll go where Jesus goes in verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is how Jesus' conversation went with with the two people on the road to Emmaus that day. He says, you know what? The Bible unfolds a true story that's ultimately all about me. Hey, you remember back in Genesis 3 when God said that there would be one who will bruise the head, who'll crush the head of the serpent, although the serpent will bruise his heel? Guess what? That was me. When I was crucified, Satan bruised my heel. But guess what I did today? I crushed his head. Remember the ark? Noah's ark? Remember how God's... God's people were saved from the waters of God's judgment. Well, guess what? That ark pointed to me, and I'm the only safe place that you will ever find on judgment day. And I'm the only safe place that if you're in me, then you will be saved, not from the waters of judgment, from the fire of God's judgment and hell. Do you remember when God told Abraham to to sacrifice Isaac? Remember how Abraham was terrified and he wanted to, he was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, but just in that split second, when Abraham Abraham was about ready to sacrifice Isaac, God said, stop, Abram, look, there's a ram over there that's got his horns caught, and God allowed the ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Jesus says, guess what, that was pointing to me. I am your substitutionary sacrifice. I am the one that comes down. But our Heavenly Father did not allow me to be spared, but he allowed me to be crucified on that cross. Remember the Passover lamb that was shed? The blood was shed of that perfect, precious lamb. And that was spread over the the threshold of the doors. And that was only if your threshold had the blood of the lamb covering it, that angel death would pass over you. The same is true for you today and on judgment day. Only if you've had the blood of Jesus Christ spread across you are you free and clear. Remember the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would put his his hand on the head of the goat and would confess the sins of the people and then he would yell at him to get out of the camp, to get out of the camp and he he would run him into the wilderness. I am your scapegoat people. I am the one that upon my head has been confessed all of your sins and I've taken them as far as the east is from the west never to be remembered again. You know, it's the high priest that is the only one that can take God's people's sins into the holy of holies. I am your high priest and I am the one that through me today you will come into the presence of God not only today but for all of eternity. 
Remember how God promised King David an eternal dynasty? I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the promised Messiah. And because I've resurrected today, my kingdom will have no end. Remember the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I am your suffering servant, Jesus said to them that day. The proverb says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I am the wisdom of God. I am the power of God because I am the only one that feared God more than man. And that's why I was perfectly obedient from start to finish, from birth to death to resurrection. And last but not least, you read about Jonah, how he was killed and in the belly of a well of fish for three days, and God spit him out. Not only is that true, but that pointed to me, because I've been dead three days in the ground, and now look at me. I'm standing before you, resurrected, victorious, forever. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only real, but it's essential. It's necessary. Leave this place today knowing that there is only one king, there's only one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the undisputed, undefeated champion of the world. That is why we celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this celebration of Easter. And we pray that we would know, that we would believe, and we would rejoice. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people agreed saying, amen.